Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Footnotes and Fairy Tales with me, Damien Fox, the platform that hopes to showcase people and their stories. My guest today is currently the library manager at One Point Library. He has a PhD in English literature and was a lecturer in Belfast for three years. The library in One Point recently held an evening called Walking on Earth to celebrate the life and work of Irish poet Seamus Heaney. It was held to mark the 10th anniversary of his passing in 2013. So please let me introduce to you today Dr. Niall Kennedy. Hi, Niall. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Damien, for the invite. Very much appreciated. Um, as I've said to you previously, um, I had been doing some research on Seamus Heaney. Just for my own interest, I'd watched a lot of archive footage, a lot of uh, old interviews and stuff. And that's when I stumbled across something on Facebook that there was an evening being held to celebrate Heaney's life and work in One Point Library. Um, and it was yourself that was effectively hosting that, giving a talk and re reciting some of Heaney's work. So I felt it, the need then to reach out to you and ask you to, to come on here. Um, but before I get to Heaney, which is obviously something of great interest to me and, and, and yourself, I want to talk about you. Um, as I understand, you're a doctor of philosophy. You have that PhD in English literature. Um, but what was what was your earlier interests? Uh, I guess as a, a in those formative teenage years, perhaps. Um, well, I was always, you know, in love with reading. Right, I was always curious. Uh, I was always wanting to expand, you know, my interests. So, like, I would have read anything. Like, you know, early teenage years, you know, would have been Goosebumps, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, stuff like that. But also, also interested me in my teenage years would have been. You know, I was obsessed with, you know, music as well. You know, like classic rock, you know, would I be like, gave a Bowie, Queen. I was just really interested in that kind of stuff. But like, you know, my teenage years would have been, I was very quiet, you know, kept myself to myself. And I just liked, you know, discovering something new. Like, mm -hmm. came, whether it be, you know, books or music. That's That was that would have been me in my teenage years. You know, it's just, uh, you know, as I said, we've would, would just been a bit shy, I would have said, you know. As it relates to school, I mean, what were, what were your strong subjects or what did you lean towards because you enjoyed it most? Um, well, naturally enough, it would have been uh, English literature, English language. Like, it was always pretty good you know, when it came to spelling and grammar. But aside from English, I, I love history as well. You know, mm -hmm. I, I did history right up until uh, university. I still love history, you know, all different kinds of history, whether it be Irish history or English, just you know, like uh, when I study literature, you find out the lives of, say, like, you know, Seamus Heaney or WBH, whoever it might be. You always want to find out the context in which they wrote. So that's why I just, I was, you know, I'm a big, you know, I'm fascinated by history as well. So those have been my, like, uh, strong subjects. You know, I was always, I was decent at maths, but I just, I always feel like as if you had to have the brain for, you know, English or maths, it's hard to do both kind of thing. Yeah. And then, um, as it relates to university, what did you hope to do and what did you ultimately end up doing? And was there a clear um, end goal in mind? Uh, before university, I must say that the sea change for me was whenever I was doing A-levels in St. Coleman's College in Nere. So a big shout out to my former English teacher, Mr. Sloan. Um, it, was, it was his lessons that made me realise that it was... Not only was it university I wanted to go to, but it was specifically English. Mm -hmm. Because in his in Mr. Sloan's class, what we would have done is we would have done the likes of 
W.B. Yeats, uh, Shakespeare. Uh, but the important difference was that up until then, I felt like English was, you had to write down what the teacher told you, what text meant. You know, this is dramatic irony because I say it is kind of thing. Whereas by the time of A-levels, the difference was you could almost say whatever you wanted about the writer, as long as you could back it up with mm -hmm. references. It was always, you know, it was interesting for debate. So that's why I decided to take it on as a subject at, at Queen's, you know, up in Belfast. Um, and what I, I, I realized whenever you go to university, about 90% of learning is self-orientated. You know what I mean? It's, you know, you have to have the, the self-discipline, I believe, and the, mm -hmm. you know, the motivation to, to find the reader or to find the writers, discover them in yourself and actually, you know, sit and read it. You know, but I, I would say it was actually A-levels that would have, you know, made me where I am today, I would say. And then, you know, not, not to say, you know, there was great lecturers at, at Queen's. And like, I definitely, you know, felt like as if they helped me along the way as well. And you mentioned one, one teacher in particular there. I mean, from my own experience, I would say there's probably two teachers that kind of helped, helped shape me and, and the person I would become. Um, you know, one of them, I suppose, in their level was my English literature teacher, Mel McMahon. He's a, a poet from Armagh. Uh, he introduced me to theatre and poetry and, and things like that. So that's, that's had a lasting impact on me. Would you say that teacher that you talked about had that same impact on you? Or is it an accumulative thing with a number of teachers? Um, well, yeah, I would say I had great teachers at St. Colin's College. But I would, you know, Mr. Sloan definitely was the the set you know the standout for me you know like i always tried whenever i was teaching you know years later at queens i always tried to just emulate that's you know that style that approach just like no matter what you say about certain texts like you know elaborate on it you know it, it, whatever it might be just let's build upon you always try and um how do you say it? you always try and just be that teacher for someone else you know because that's the thing I've noticed in my own interactions with students is that they will say, you know, now whenever you mentioned how I did a good presentation, that really stuck with me. And like sometimes you're like, oh, you know, what, what did I even say then? You know, there so is. It's hard to remember exactly what you said to every single person. Um, of course, like that as well, uh, as well as school, you know, um, you're, you're also brought up, you know, we're, we're, I was, uh, I'm, a, I'm a person of, you know, the internet age, you know what I mean? So like, you always would have YouTube and like, well, you know, well, we do waste a lot of time watching silly videos on YouTube. You can always, you know, find like TED Talks, you know, people really mm -hmm. interested. Like, you know, like I wouldn't say I'm a big science buff, but uh, the, you know, the astrophysicist, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, what I love about him is that he can take some of the most complicated things, you know, like black holes and just, if he can, he's trying to explain it to like, as you would to like a five-year-old, you know, so like you always try and like extrapolate that. It's like, Try and explain, you know, Shakespeare or whoever it is to a younger person, you know. Yeah, I mean, you've you've kind of touched upon it. Uh, the the impact that a teacher can have uh, in shaping young people, whether it be positively or, or negatively. When we move on to college, then when when you graduate uh, from Queens, uh, I, I guess um, what what was the next step? Was there a clear idea where you go next? Um. Well, not really. So. My final year at Queen's, I, I, I went in to do undergraduate. I did English and history. And what happened was, is that uh, my final year, of my third year of Queen's, 
I did this essay on Shakespeare, and the thing was you could talk about basically anything you want to. So I decided the topic of a nice topic of suffering in uh, King Lear, right? So I was at Christmas time of my final year, and I got a pretty good mark in it. And I was quite pleased with myself. And I can remember my first class after um, Christmas was with the same teacher. And I was actually late to the class, just, you know, traffic. And when we were introducing ourselves to class, the teacher said to me, the lecturer said to me, could you meet me after class? And I thought, oh, this is him going to give off to me about being late to the class. So he said, let's go to my office. And I thought, oh, my God, must be something really serious. And he says, you did quite well in your last essay. What do you hope to do next? And I was just sitting there like, I don't really know. And he was like, oh, I think you should go on further. I think you should go on for the PhD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing led to another. I went on to do the master's in English. I went on to do the PhD in English. Now, um, as I said, I, I, I didn't even know what would be the final step after that. Um, I always thought I would try to get, you know, lecturer queens i have been doing that for like on and off for the past four years but um you know truth be told there's a reason why you know university lectures are on strikes you know um put it very simply and shortly there's just there's not enough hours to go around for everyone you know Mm um i mean i've always had an interest in literature um i mean i think for my part, that stems again from, like you, A-levels had that kind of impact on me. You know, I was introduced to the likes of Hemingway, uh, mm-hmm. which I'm a huge fan. Uh, then again, I was introduced to the theatre, you know, Samuel Beckett, um, you know, Brenton Behan, um, Sean O'Casey. And to this day, I still have a, a passion uh, and, I, and I pursue it. You know, when I, I live in Switzerland now, but when I'm home, I always make a point to go to Abbey Theatre, the Lyric Theatre. Um, mm-hmm. No matter where I am, I continue to read. So let's say, for granted now, you know, um, you're, you're an academic, you have the PhD. Um, I, away from that, because in one respect, that, that's uh, an, an academic path that you've chose to go down. But as it relates to your own personal passion and away from college, away from teaching, do you still have that same labor of love for, for literature and, and theater and poetry? Oh, yes, sure. I, I try not to stand too far. I try not to stay too far away from literature because I've actually ended up now, I'm the manager of One Point Library. And that's, you know, I'm literally not too far from the books. I'm almost, you know, gatekeeping that. And what's happened in the recent months is that I've been able to bring my uh, knowledge and skills to the fore. I've, you know, as you mentioned earlier, giving a talk on uh, writers as diverse as Seamus Heaney, W.B. Yeats, James Joyce, Shakespeare, and so on. Um, but of course, like yourself, you can never uh, you never lose that love of literature, you know. Um, and I can read. Well, you know, I, I like to call myself a jack of all trades who come to literature because where it's from Geoffrey Chaucer in the 1300s up to Stephen King's most recent. I always have like, you know, try and devour it all kind of thing, you know? So, and that, you know, you were saying there earlier about how, you know, you, you, whenever you're home from Switzerland, you like to go to the, the Abbey Theatre or or so on. And like, yeah, you know, I would be the same because like I've never actually uh, sat down and done a course 
on the American playwright Arthur Miller, but I've seen so many plays of his, you know, in the likes of the Gate Theatre in mm. Dublin. And so it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a passion, uh, you know, not just, you know, in academia, but it's also outside of that as well. Having achieved uh, your PhD, um, how, how big or a defining moment was that for you personally? Well, uh, whenever I was graduating, this was during the height of COVID, you know, and I suppose anything, anything out of the ordinary during COVID would make you, would make you smile. Um, it, it was so bizarre, I suppose, because, you know, you always feel like, you know, doctor, me, doctor, what are you talking about, you know? And like, you always make that joke, like if, you, if you're going on a, on a flight and you, you land on your doctor, it's like, you know, if anyone's having a stroke, I can read them a song, Shakespeare, you know? Um, but like, the analogy I always kind of use, because like, at the end of the day, you always feel like, I'm not, you don't feel any smarter than you were going in sometimes. But uh, the analogy I always use is that whenever you're like, you're doing the PhD for four years, right? You just, you know, it's 80,000 words. You're just writing and writing. You keep doing it and doing it. The way I always think about it is like, again, I use a science metaphor, scientific metaphor. Is that like, if you put a frog in water and very slowly heat it up, the frog won't notice. And if you keep doing it, it actually can burn and die. Whereas like, if you put a frog in hot water from the beginning, the frog will freak out. And that's why I feel like as if, you know, in a way I'm like that frog. It's like, year in year out you know when you're studying and writing you start to realize you're not smart anyway but it's just like you know this topic where it might be wherever this writer is you've been studying and writing about it for years so like you know remember i was saying to you earlier about how in my teenage years i was like shy i really kept myself to myself like the last thing i wanted to do was to stand up and give a presentation right i i remember like as i said to everyone you don't you shouldn't really care because if you have a class of people doing a presentation whenever someone else is up all you're sitting to think about what am i going to do what am i going to do? i better not mess this up and then you go do your talk and everyone else is still thinking about their talk whenever you sit back down you're like you, you won't care what everyone's saying because you're like i've done my bit right but what happened like i was always like that i was like terrified you know public speaking but you realize that you know, a PhD is very like isolating experience. You're locked away in your own little ivory tower for years. You just you can't wait to talk to anyone. You know, so that's why <laughs> you stand up in front of someone. It's like I almost say like uh, lecturing is like talking to yourself in public. You know, you, you actually you're surprised people want to listen to you. You know, you're just you're just dying to share all this. You know, sometimes feels like useless information sometimes just to anyone. You know. Yeah. So. With regards to the PhD, that's obviously, I would, imme I would imagine, I, I suppose it depends how you look at it. It's, it's the end point of a particular journey that, mm -hmm. you know, or it's, it's the beginning of a, of a new one. I mean, here you've spent yeah. this many years in academia. Um, did you see it as, a, as an end point, a final goal achieved, or the beginning of something new? Or is it a mixture of both? Um, look, there's definitely been good and bad since the PhD. You know, I, um, I definitely, I don't see it as the end of anything. Like for all I know, I could go back in academia, you know, whether that be a postdoc or like another PhD. I haven't entirely ruled it out. Um, but I definitely felt like in terms of, it was also the end of the PhD project. It was like, right, finally, I can put it on a shelf. 
it's done, it's dusted, it's abandoned almost in a, in a sense. You know, I, I'm glad I don't have to keep rewriting it. But, you know, I, the truth be told as well is that there's definitely good and bad because, like, the good bits are obvious. It's like you have the sense of completion. You can celebrate your you know, family and friends. But the bad things are is that it's, you don't just walk into jobs like that there, you know, right away. You know, in the years since the PhD, I've worked, you know, freelance as a tutor. And you'd be surprised, like, no joke, over the years, I've had people contact me saying, can you tutor me in Mandarin, you know, Chinese? And you're like, I don't have the qualifications for this here. And, it's like, and they're like offering to pay you big, big money for it. Like, no, look, you've got the wrong person. I won't do this. And then on the other hand, someone will be saying, uh, you know, you, you applied to tutor someone in GCSE English. And they said, no, we don't think you're qualified enough. So, you, you know, for, since the PhD and during PhD, you got to learn that, you know, you can't have an ego, you know, because throughout the PhD process itself, you know, you're writing chapter after chapter. And sometimes you're thinking, this is the greatest thing I've ever written, or this is like, you know, it should be locked away and burned. And then like, your PhD supervisor along the way is going to tell you, you know, what's at fault almost. You know, obviously they're going to build you up. They're still going to say, change this, get rid of that. And like, the amount of stuff I've deleted could fill books. You know what I mean? That didn't go into the final PhD project. And it's the same with, you know, since the PhD, it's like, you've got to realize that um, you don't just walk into a lectureship position you don't just walk in to become you know, as they talk about tenure it just doesn't happen like that there you gotta make ends meet you gotta as i say you get you try and tutor some people it just doesn't just doesn't happen you know as i said you just you gotta learn not only self-discipline but just you got a sense of ego it's you have to get rid of that so was it inevitable that you would go on to lecture or what were some other ideas as to what you would do um with what you've accomplished? I mean, was there ever a sense that maybe creatively you wanted to write yourself or was it in a teaching sort of framework that you saw yourself? Well, what they do, what Queen's very helpfully do during the PhD is that you do teach while you are still studying yourself. And that's a great experience, i say, get you out of the house. Something as simple as that there, get you out of the house, get you away from the library, get away from your own studies. And, you know, I was thinking, oh yeah, this is. I'm going to be more of this at the end, but sometimes that just doesn't happen. But when you talk about um, uh, other creative ventures, yeah, I do dabble in, in writing myself. You know, um, for the past three years or so now, I've actually been trying to write a play about uh, <laughs> the Phoenix Park murders in Dublin, which happened in 1882, and. It's it's just been an on and off. It started off as a COVID project, but I've just been trying to get people to look at it. like I've just trying to throw everything but the kitchen sink. I'm almost like trying to steal bits from different Irish writers, a little bit of Shakespeare here and there. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I I like that. That'd be my creative aspect, and um, as well as that, I do love teaching as well. You know, I do love getting up. I say it doesn't matter where it's to. An academic audience or a general audience. I do love just sharing and debating different writers as well. Yeah, that's that's something I've always attempted to do, and I guess in many ways I, I'm kind of fearful of of the need to write because I'm afraid that I'll fall short of 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 what I hope hope to achieve. So I find myself more often than not actually not writing because I'm too fearful. 
I suppose not only of falling short of the standard I hope, but of being judged for not being good, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So that's always a bit of stumbling block for me. Um, if we move on to, to your current position, you're the manager of, of Warren Point Library. Um, when, when you come into a role like that, what do you hope to bring to it? Um, as I said, I, I feel like as if, you know, the, the Beatles just released a new song, right? I heard and, that today, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. And, well, we'll just put Ringo aside one bit, right? But, you know, you have Ben McCartney and Harrison. Everyone's trying to bring... Everyone's trying to write songs. You know, everyone's trying to bring something to the table. And that's what I try and do with Warm Point Library. I'm like, you know, with me and my team, we're like, what can we bring to the table? And obviously my skill sets would be literature, and that's why I was hoping to give talks. You know, we have many great artists in the library, and I'm just trying to, you know, encourage that as well. Just what can we actually bring to the fore, you know? And I'm just trying to, you know, learn the ropes, you know, because it was baptism by fire. You, you have to, you know, I came in there and I've only been there for six months. And I've just been trying to, you know, what day by day approach, you know, as you were saying there about how you don't want to fall short. Well, I try, I try to keep this mentality from writing as well as Warren Point Library or whatever it might be. You always just got to tell yourself, what can I actually just do today? Today, forget about tomorrow. What can I, whenever I wake up, what can I do different today? And that might be simple, you know, one point library, something simple as let's get some Halloween decorations up. Did you get that done? Are they the best Halloween decorations ever? Maybe not, but you know, it's, I was able to do that today. And that's what you have to try and tell yourself is that, as you were saying, you know, you're stumbling and you're writing, um, you think you're going to fall short, whatever it might be, whether it's writing or managing, you always, what I try and tell myself, take writing for example, is that like, whatever I write in a day, you tell yourself half of this is going to be scrapped. And that might seem as like, what, I, I've always a better writer. Just, no, 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 just tell yourself, whatever I write today, half of that will not see the light of day. And it gives you a sense of freedom. It's sort of like, well, half of, if half of this people aren't going to see, I'll just keep writing that. And then it, it gives you, you know, a chance to be more bold in a sense. It's the same with whatever it might be. Manage libraries like, you know, people aren't going to see what I'm going to do here. So let's 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 move to display. You know, people might notice it. Well, something simple as that. There, I was like, well, I just you know give it a go kind of thing. Um, but that's why I said to go back to the beginning. I always just like try and encourage each one of us at the library just to whatever your skills or talents are, put them on display. You know, that's I'm always trying to think outside the boat, just trying to you know encourage i've been inviting people to give talks as well like a lot of people have have said to me yep they're very interested in and it's the same mentality where it's like i email people you know s s introducing myself and saying would you like to give a talk at one point library and you think they may never reply to you they may say god no how dare you invite but it's like so what at least i tried it you know i've been i've been very lucky in that regard so far i think it's wonderful what you're doing i mean i stumbled across that post on facebook that you know, was talking about the, the, the evening that would celebrate James Heaney's life and work. Um, and it's quite aptly named Walking on Air. Um, I was frustrated initially because I wanted to go. And that's something that I would love to go uh, and be a part of. Um, but obviously, you know, I, I'm not at home at the moment, so I wasn't able to. Um, 
what I find one nice about what you're doing is is that you're trying to engage more with with let's say an audience. You're trying to bring people into the library. I mean, especially in, in this digital age, where you find that libraries are probably seen in some regard by the newer generation as archaic and dusty old rooms with dusty old books. How do you overcome that challenge and try to engage more in order to get people back into libraries, uh, get back into reading? It's definitely a difficult challenge. And of course, you have to accept the fact that people do consume literature in different ways. You know, there's there's online methods, there's Kindle, and there's different um, apps and websites that library users can go to to discover you know the latest books so you gotta remember sometimes that just because people aren't physically in the library you know people are still reading mm -hmm. um of course there's so many uh generational long-term trends in you know people not going to library especially you know people in their 20s and 30s and again you just gotta feel like what can what can you actually do in your own little capacity? So we're, you're trying to get, you know, the popular books. You're trying to even do things just differently, like to get people in the library. You know, I've proposed this idea of, of game night, you know, where people, you know, bring Monopoly sets, Jenga, something, just get them in the library. You almost, It's almost like a you're trying to get the man's like, oh, and by the way, we have these books by such and such writer. Would you like one, you know? Um, because people, you know, for a lot of people, that uh, the library would just be it's their only sense of you know a social setting, mm -hmm. you know, for especially for older people. Um, but for for younger people, it's just like you know, keep keep battering at that door, keep trying to give talks, you know. Uh, it's sp usually spreads by word of mouth, for like as you said, people see your posts up on Facebook, you know. Um, just different events. Just you just try and think outside the box too. Yeah. You know, you know we we have uh, st very recently we you know I have like arts and crafts which are very popular. Again, you get people in the library and it's like, well, you're doing arts and crafts as well. It's like, well, by the way, you know, there's other different forms of arts as well <laughs> within these you know these pages. So it's I just like different things. I I seen a picture online and it was obviously a picture from the evening. Um, kind of from the back of the room looking up toward you speaking. I mean, it, it's very poignant when you when you look at the demographic that you were talking to. It, it, it was quite an, an older audience, um, which, I mean, could be for many reasons, but how, how, to, how would you look to get people, younger people, younger generation to engage more with the likes of Seamus Heaney and take an interest? I do think you have to get them while they're young anyways. You know, I do feel like as if at school, you know, it'd be worth even visiting schools to discuss um, writers, you know. You need to show how it can be relevant to your life. And mm -hmm. you don't want to try and force it down people's throats. You know, if all you know, people just mightn't get Seamus Heaney. But I, I do feel like there's a writer out there for everyone, you know. Um and of course, some people it's just in this day and age, it's all about media gratification, isn't it? You know, like I think this here is one of the you know the best and worst inventions in the world because 
we have sort of lost sight of the fire gratification. Like it takes a long time to read books in most mm -hmm. cases. And this here is like, you know, awful for the distracting you. Um, like I would say, remember I mentioned about how uh, the sea change for me was A-levels. Well, I just, I was, whenever I was 18, I didn't really have a smartphone. And I can remember that where it be English literature or history books, I was getting through about like 10 books in a week. Easy. I remember there'd be nights here in this very room where I'd be reading Irish history books cover the cover because I didn't have any distractions. Whereas now I, I will admit, I think we're all addicted to, to the phones. I admit that that number's definitely been halved. You know, I, I wouldn't get through as many books in a week. I wouldn't say, you know, solely through the mobile phone. Your know, life gets in the way too. You know, I was obviously a lot freer as a teenager, but I, I definitely would be one to say of the perils of distraction in this day and age, you know, and just you try and encourage young people, just take that time to switch off, like literally switch off from anything electronic, any, any of the phones, and just find whatever it is you're interested in, whether it's, you know, crime, romance, or any of the classics of literature, just dip in and, again, it's what can you do today? You know, I'm not going to tell you to read the entire poetry of Seamus Heaney or, you know, all of, you know, Leo Tolstoy's, you know, War and Peace one day. But it's like, can you read a page? Great. Tomorrow, can you read two pages? You know, and so on. Just little by little, can you just, you know, expand your horizons that little bit? You know, so again, yeah. it goes back to that mantra. What can you do today? But I, I do feel like... You try and need to you, you do need to get them while they're young, anyways. You know that their mm. interest. Um, it can be in the most un unlikely of places. You know, whatever writer grabs you, like that's the thing I, I think is key is that if you're halfway interested in literature and a writer grabs you, it's almost like get out of that person's way because they'll just they'll just keep reading as much as they can of that writer. You won't have to direct them. You know. Yeah, I wanted to understand your relationship to Seamus Heaney um, and, and why, I mean, obviously it's, it's 10 years since his passing. So it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to, to mark that anniversary. So that would explain in part why you, you would choose Seamus Heaney, but obviously I would imagine there's a personal element. You must enjoy his poetry or have a keen interest in the man. So what was the reason behind it? Well, I can remember as far back as primary school, you know, it's it's almost like a rite of passage where everyone from the north has to encounter Seamus Heaney. And at primary school, we had to recite Heaney's poem "Blackberry Picking," you know, mm -hmm. and it was it almost first experience in it in, in primary school. The fact that as a class we recite line by line, it almost in, in a weird way, it was almost like a religious experience because you you would say your morning prayers, and then you would say you know late August, given heavy rain and so on. It was almost like another prayer you would be saying. Um, but of course, I, you know, my love of literature, you know, whether it be English, Irish literature, you have to come across Seamus Heaney. You, you, you can't ignore him, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, as many people would say, he'd be the greatest, you know, Irish poet since W.B. Yeats. And, you know, I even know some similarities between his life and mine. The fact that you know we we both 
uh, were educated at Queens and also end up educating at Queens. You know, mm -hmm. so whenever you have a poet, we share some life experiences and the fact that like whenever I first encountered him, he was obviously still alive. You know, so like it's so weird. Like um, as a matter of fact, what I find so strange is that like whenever I'd be like teaching Shakespeare or Yeats, you know, you're dealing with people hundreds of years ago. Whereas um, you mentioned there, there was quite a few older people at the crowd and one by the library. So after the talk, people came up to me and they said like, you know, you uh, you mentioned that Seamus Heaney uh, was lecturing at St. Joseph's College. He lectured me. So I was talking to people who were lectured by Seamus Heaney. And it's like, you know, whenever you're doing Shakespeare, you never have anyone come up to you and say, well, I know the man, it's impossible, you know? So like, it's, you know, that's really astounding. Is that, you know, he's so close to, he's so close to me in many ways, not only you know, almost geographically, you know, he was from, you know, County Derry, he's close, but, you know, as you say, he's, he's only passed away these 10 years, you know, his family are still alive. And as I said, it's impossible if, you know, you're doing a PhD in English literature, or even if you just have a, a passing interest in, in Irish literature, you can't ignore the man, you know? Um, what You know, you might have your complaints or whatever, but you have to study him, you know? And what was the experience like? Um, I would imagine in, in having to give a talk about Seamus Heaney, you would have to try and understand the man and his life uh, a bit better. I mean, what in particular, when, when reading about him, was there anything particularly poignant or anything that struck struck a chord with you that, um, I guess, um, resonates? Yeah. Um, you know, many of his talks are on YouTube. And even how he looks, he, he always has this calming influence, you know? Um, you know, Yates was always like the finger point, like you know, I'm always smarter than you kind of thing in a way. Um, whereas whenever you look at Seamus Heaney, it's just like, what I, what I love about him is this common influence and, you know, a lot of people say how he seemed to have time for everyone. Like you could have come up to him and just talked about anything, you know? And what I love about Heaney, what, what's struck with me is that he was definitely self-taught for, for the most part, you know? Like at school, they would have introduced him to some writers, like bits of like, you know, the classics like Virgil or something. But he would have went off and learned Virgil by heart, like everything the man wrote. You know, I always find like this idea of being self-taught is something to be admired, you know. And again, as I was saying to you earlier about how, you know, I love, you know, teaching. He needs, you know. Yes, he, 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 he resigned his post from Queens early on, but if you read his lectures or you watch his lectures on YouTube, it's astounding. He definitely was one of the all-time great lectures. Like I really encourage people to check it out. Like One of his best lectures was on where he compares the poetry of W.B. Yeats and Philip Larkin. And whenever I first uh, read it, I was like sent reeling for weeks in a way. It's just that like he just was able to just come across ideas that you never thought of before, you know? Um, but of course, Heaney's life is is different in so many ways to mine in that, um, you know, it, during his life was obviously a difficult period in Northern Ireland. As always, you got to ask yourself, what would you have done mm -hmm. during those years? Because like, 
the thing that strikes me about doing research about Heaney is that he would have admitted it himself pretty early on is that he was so lucky at the start in that his first collection, Death of Naturalist, was, you know, lauded and like it sold very well. You know, like that, that those those years between 1964 and 66, everything seemed to go right for him. Is that he has his first poetry collection, he gets married, he has kids. It, it's just like he, but what come what came with that though was whenever he had the troubles come on, I was like, Oh, you're the poet for our our tribe now. And he's just like back and I was like, I wrote I write poetry for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to speak for anyone. It's just like you gotta ask yourself, what would what would I have done? You know, it's like it's 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 yes, it's great for success, but there's also there were pitfalls and like it was it's interesting to see not only how he negotiates for that, but how he he actually puts his negotiations on display in poetry. You know, he says like, you know, he talks about how someone from Sinn Féin says, when the F are you going to write for us? And his response is, you know, I never did. I, I always write for myself. If I ever choose to, it'll be at my own, you know, my own leisure kind of thing. So, yes, I mean, I'm struck by so many similarities, but what all, I think the, the overall thing for me that really stands out is that you just seem to have time for everyone, you know, just mm-hmm. time to help. You know, I, like, it was interesting. I was just talking to people they came up to me after and more point, I was just saying, I, you know, Heaney would have, whenever he was teaching in his younger days, he would almost ignore the class plan. He'd just say, you know, let's talk about imagery. You know, something like that. They just throw it out there. Again, this idea of debates, you know, just something, so, so what is an image? What is, what, how, how apt can an image be? You know, how does each poet create this image in your mind? You know, whenever you say, if I were to say to you, uh, an old man fell off a chair. Your picture of an old man in a chair is completely different from mine, you know. But we both understand the same thing. But it's you know, your old man. You have a particular person in your head, the same as me. You know, and the chair might be different. It might be a wooden chair. It might be like you know, a swivel chair. But it's just like again, all these different, uh, just so something so fascinating from something so simple. You know, this idea of an image, and he could have a, an hour's talk about it. Yeah. He- I mean, you've talked a lot about it. Um, for me, again, there's there's that warmth and accessibility to Heaney that obviously it, for many poets we don't have. I mean, when you talk about Yeats, there's not a, a wealth of material online or or, or video. Um, I think we're very fortunate that we have all of that um, so Heaney is accessible to us. But again, he made himself accessible. Um, I'd watched a... I, I guess a talk, uh, not necessarily a lecture, between Roy Foster um, and Heaney's daughter Catherine, uh, mm-hmm. and and this I guess relates to his first work, you know, Death of a Naturalist, and she talked about the fact that people, most people, had the impression with Death of a Naturalist that that Heaney arrived fully formed as a poet, um, but there obviously was a tremendous amount of work to get to that point. Um, that people perhaps lose sight of. Um, I guess with the troubles and, and how that relates to Heaney, an unenviable position for a poet, um, whether it be nationalist or, or unionist, to try and thread that particular line tactfully, uh, which I think he did a marvelous job of. Uh, I'd watched something, uh, perhaps some of his early stuff, um, where he was asked, you know, because I guess with a poet and a successful poet, there's a platform. You know, he's got a, a speakerphone. 
uh, I suppose naturally it was something that nationalists hoped that he would use, you know, for his tribe. Um, but he had said that poetry wasn't good as, as a means of accusation, you know, uh, which I, I suppose naturally when you think about it, I can understand that completely, you know. Um, but like I said, he was tactful uh, and masterful. I think he was measured. Uh, and to, to have been put in a position like that uh, and to have to have handled it as, as he did uh, speaks to the man. Um, when we look at his poetry, um, something that I had come across time and time and time again was this word of evasion or evasive um, where he, he didn't want to, I mean, as it relates particularly to the troubles, he didn't want to talk about it directly. He, he had a, a means to talk about it indirectly. You know, so much of his poetry, uh, I suppose, is layered. You know, you have that very top superficial layer, but there's so much more beneath, you know. Um, when when we talk about Heaney, the poet, and Heaney, the man, what 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 are things? What are some of the things? And you've probably touched upon it already. But like when you look at at, at the man and the poet, what for you? What's to be admired about him? Uh, like in terms of his character qualities. Well, as a man, we've been talking about how he, he seems just so accessible. He, he never got big headed, you know. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter, like you know, as I said. At one point, he's teaching at Queens. Then he's professor at Harvard for many years. Uh, Oxford, the Nobel Prize of Literature. It didn't go to his head. He was always still our Seamus in the end, you know. Um, in fact, for more, from you know, a lot of people still call him by his first name. You know, you always feel like as if he's a friend. Mm -hmm. And you know, I feel like another similarity between he and the man. It's also his poetry, and something I always relate to is that you know, from death of not just to his last collection, he always talks about his childhood experiences. You know, something so innocent as I mentioned the poem Blackberry Picking. You know, he always had this eye for what he did as a child in the rural life. He he liked to elevate the the labor of you know on the farm, and. That's that always just struck me because you know I basically you know live in the middle of nowhere beside farms you know and it, it takes you back to this idea of idyllic childhood you know obviously he's one around you didn't you didn't care there was no clocks in a sense you were just happy in your own in your own little world and that also speaks to his poetry because you know in his poetry he is creating his own little worlds you know. Um, there's something incredibly wholesome uh, about that childhood experience, you know, incredibly idyllic. And I think a lot of people, not that they relate to it, but are certainly drawn to it, you know? Yeah. But again, it, it is multi-layered as well, because in his early poem, probably one of his most famous poems, Digging, mm. where he talks, you know, the great thing about Heaney is that uh, he might be talking about his father digging in, in, in the field, but he's also talking about uh, digging into the roots for poetry. And there's that great lines where he says, um, you know, between my finger and my thumb, squat pen rests snug as a gun. Now, of course, 
it, it's beautiful on the tongue. But of course, in the lead up to the troubles, of course, people are going to read into this, you know, snug as a gun. There's this hint of aggression. There's this hint of violence. And even in poems as innocent as Blackberry Pickin, where he talks about how it's great and all going out picking the blackberries, but there's little hints of just there's danger because he talks about the briar scratching himself as he's going out. And then, of course, there's that inevitable disappointment, as he says, where the blackberries will not stay. They will eventually rot. There's this sense of too much of a good thing as well. Mm-hmm. So there's always just this, you know, there's little um, multi-layers. There's, you know, his poetry is multi-layered. Um, but yeah, that, that's the other great thing too about his poetry is that he, he makes his self-doubts as we were talking there about, you know, can he be the voice of his country and whatever that might be. He puts his self-doubts on the page. You know, he, he makes strength out of weakness, for lack of a better word, you know. He's saying, like, he puts his, you know, tentative uh, poet, you know, he puts his tentative powers on display. He, he's, 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 he's revealing you all of his own self-doubts. He's taking you into his own mind and his poetry. He's not afraid to show you how, you know, people might accuse him of being a coward because in, in 1972, at the height of the Troubles, he took his family out of Belfast into County Wicklow. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, many people at the time said, oh, you're abandoning your people. You know, like, again, it's one of the things, what would you have done at that time? You know, of course, you can debate, you can possibly see a many, bit of both sides, but if you and your own family, if you could have got out of, of you know, a conf, you know, conflict, you know, society, would you have done the same thing? You know, and he's able to answer years later. He's able to go back to that there idea that, you know, am I a coward? Am I not? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to say, you know, or to answer what would I have done in similar circumstances. But, I mean, I think he made it very clear that it was the right decision for his family. Um, there was something that struck me in research in Heaney, and in particular that move from, from Belfast to Wicklow. Um, uh, in one of the older interviews, he was asked, you know, at what point did you see yourself uh, uh, as the poet? Uh, and he said it was effectively, not by chance, but he had gone to Wicklow and relo- relocated the family. And part of the relocation is, is that he would register his children with the, with the local school. Um, so he, he had gone in to register his daughter uh, for the local school in Wicklow that his kids would go to. And part of the process at that time was you'd fill out the necessary paperwork. Mm. Um, and he had said that a large part of it, a large part of the paperwork administration, administrative side of things back then still would have been in Irish. Um, so he, I think he had said without effectively asking him that the headmaster in filling out the part of the form that asked for the father's profession, uh, the principal had gone ahead and effectively filled in an Irish poet. Mm. And, and he says, you know, he could have put professor, but for whatever reason, he put the Irish for poet. And it was realistically from that point forward that he started uh, seeing himself uh, as the poet, um, which is a relatively trivial thing to happen. But for him, that was kind of a line in the sand. And from that point forward, he, he would see himself as the poet, um, 
which I just thought was incredibly interesting. Well, um, because also to that point is that it was someone else who put it down for him. Again, it's always like, you know, all he did, you know, up until that point was put poetry collections out there. And people are saying, right, you're you're for our side now. You're speaking for this country, right? And if you compare him with, you know, likes of W.B. Yeats, or who basically said, I'm going to shape this country, you know, through my poetry. I'm going to mold this country. The difference is when we're talking about he needed a man and a poet, I, 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 you know, I would love to have, you know, spoken with Heaney, whereas with W.B. Yeats, I don't think you would like to have met him, you know? No, definitely, I, yeah. There's something um, I've, I guess, haven't talked to you uh, kind of offline. Um, I mean, I've always been aware of Yeats, you know, he's not someone that I've studied a great length. I mean, I think the most striking thing for me about him in particular um, and I, I, I kind of got this quote from, from an early age, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, so forgive me if I, I, I don't get it 100% correct, but um, the quote being, to think where man's glory most begins and ends, and I'll say my glory was I had such friends. Um, and in my eyes, if he had written nothing else bar that, he was a master because it's so elegant. Uh, and I, from that point forward, Yeats had always stayed with me. For that, for that alone, um, but I've gone away and I haven't talked to you briefly, uh, and kind of looked into the man and <sighs> incredibly interesting to say the least. Uh, and some of the things that he was uh, privy to or interested in were a little unsettling as it relates to mysticism and spirituality and other worlds, um, and obviously his sexual proclivities and, uh, and different things like that. Um, but. I saw some parallels with with Heaney and Yeats in so much as their formative years. I mean, when you look at Yeats, they talk about his formative years uh, in Sligo, visiting with his mother's family. Uh, and that time, um, I think in particular, there's a, there's a point there called Ross's Point, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I've just got a, a brief quote as it relates to it, but he attributes... You know, and he talks about the, the Sligo Sea Cliffs. They were what give tongue to his poetry. Yeah. Uh, equally, when you look at, at Heaney, I guess you can say the same as it relates to Moss Bond and that upbringing uh, amongst farm life. But when we look at Yeats, um, what for you interests you about him? I think the best way to describe Yeats is that he's almost like Superman. And what I mean by that is that as poetry, he's basically super. He's like the strongest one there is, right? He's just knocking everyone out of his way. He also has his alter ego, Clark Kent, you know, who can't get Lois Lane and mm -hmm. is also a bumbling idiot. Where that's basically Yates was his, um, you mentioned his sexual proclivities. Is like, if anyone who knows Yates, they know the name Maud Gone, who just, mm -hmm. you know, Irish nationalist, even though she was originally from England, who he basically pined for for about the guts of 30 years. And he must have proposed to her about, well, countless times. And at one point, he even proposed to her 12-year-old daughter. So, and you were mentioning that, that wonderful quote about friends. Well, yes, Yates also was a member of uh, the Golden Dawn and 
what they would have done is they would have summoned demons like into their, their kitchens almost. Um, whatever came to Yates and friendships, the thing you, you realize is that um, he always wanted to be the leader of the group. So he always like formed his own little sect of the Golden Dawn. Whenever people start doing things their own way, he was like, right, let's stop this. I'm going to create a new sect until I'm the leader. So he always wanted to be the leader of his friends. Um, so those might be some of the uh, less positive things about Gates. But uh, what struck me, again, this brings us back to my A-levels, was that it was so remarkable. So like, we, we happened to be just studying Yeats. And the thing was, we did his poetry from 1886. So he's only like 21 years of age, right up. We went right through the poetry he was writing on his deathbed, literally on his deathbed, he was writing within weeks. So you felt like as if you got the length and breadth of the man through his words, you know, and words that stick with, you know, from his early poetry, the stolen child work, you know, come away, oh human child, to the waters in the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. That's locked in there. You know, it's a rhythm. It's just, it's, it's again, it's just, it's something almost religious in it. You know, his, his poetry sticks with you. I, I swear it's, it's, um, some of the most remarkable poetry I've ever come across. Um, you know, September 1913, Romantic Ireland's dead and gone. It's with O'Leary in the grave. That refrain, again, it just, it sinks into your, your brain almost. And all these years later, it has it, it's, it's stuck with me. And um, again, you can love him or loathe him for this, but, you know, as we were mentioned with Heaney, when he was alive, you know, Northern Ireland's gone through troubled times. And you mentioned the word evasion. You know, with Yeats, he certainly never evaded. He was always at the forefront. Like he knew all the, the key players in during the, you know, the formation of the Irish Free State you know, and the build up, you know, from the, the 1916 rising up until, like, you know, the, you know, he himself became a senator in the newly formed Irish Free State. He knew every, everybody, you know. He was always involved, like he you mentioned the Abbey Theatre. He helped set up the Abbey Theatre. So you can always say he was a man of business as well. That's something you can admire him, you know. You know, you don't want to take his dictatorial approach. He was always like, I want to be leader of Abbey Theatre. I need to be leader of such and such group. But I will admire him that he never evaded anything, you know. He always would go there um full frontal almost. Um and as I said, his poetry stuck with me. And yeah, I I always just I give him the benefit of the doubt in a, in a sense. I, I know like he um he tried to shape Ireland through his poetry and I we can almost laugh at it in a sense, but I almost just I admire his um his grand projects in a sense, you know. You, we can poke holes at it, but it's you almost sit back and look at yourself and say, What are you doing? you know. Could you know? Could we, through virtue of his own poetry, you know, he, that's how he ended up becoming senator in Irish Free State. You know what I mean? It's almost like, what have you done in your life? You know, we, we can laugh at others, but it, it it gives a sense of humility as well. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'd know I know in poet, but I'd know in less so. I guess the impact outside of poetry that he had on Ireland and helping to shape it. Um, his was very much a, a cultural revolution. 
uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to an armed rebellion. Um, I'd watched a documentary there with uh, Bob Geldof, mm -hmm. uh, and he had said that it was ultimately Yeats's revolution that won out. You know, that was yeah. the revolution of the mind. Um, but he was a fervent nationalist his whole life. Um, I mean, you, you talked about uh, John O'Leary there. He was the, the, the founder of the IRB uh, that played a, such a huge and instrumental part in the 1916 Rising. Um, but again, Yeats's uh, impact um, was a cultural revolution, not, not an armed, armed revolution, um, which he's had a remarkable impact. I mean, you touched upon the Abbey Theatre which he helped find, but he also helped find a ballet theater, you know, national ballet theater and, and other things. Um, and I think, and I don't have the person in mind that I'm quoting, but they had effectively said without Yeats, there would be no modern Ireland or free state. Um, mm. So, I mean, yes, his poetry is uh, incredible um, and elegant, but he's done so much more, um, which I wasn't, I wasn't aware of. And I was, but I wanted to ask you in particular, um, as it relates to kind of the mystic and, and the, the supernatural and that element of Yeats, um, when you have someone as, as gifted as him, how do you reconcile someone that is a logical, rational being, um, but equally believes in the supernatural and the mystic? Like, it seems hard to believe that the same man has those same beliefs. Um, I suppose, well... W.H. Auden, another great poet, uh, he wrote the poem In Memory of W.B. Yeats. And he says, you were silly like the rest of us. Your gift survived it all. So he, I think what I was trying to say there is that your poetic gift has survived your, your silliness. So we can, we can sit, we can stand back, you know, and say, oh, how did Yeats believe in fairies? You know, and we can laugh at it. But like, you know, in this day and age, you know, many people are still religious, you know, and again, if you sit and question your Christian, man walking on water, how silly, you know, man comes back, uh, you know, from the dead after three days, you know, never happens, right? So um, you can't sit and laugh about that. But at the same time as well is that he was able to take this, he was able to take these these fairies and use it as a imaginative resource. You know, he was able to say, like, you know, in a, in a weird way, this idea of supernatural beings can almost help explain his poetry. Is that like he was almost gifted this poetry from somewhere else? You know, it's like we can sit here and, you know, debate where does inspiration come from? Where, where, you know, like we can sit here and ask, what actually is the point of dreams? You know, when we, when we go to sleep at night, what is the point of them? You know, the, the, we're talking. You mentioned, you know, logic or rational. You know, some dreams might have, have uh, special meanings if you go down the Freudian route. But some dreams, according, you know, for us are just nonsense. But like, mm. they happen to us nonetheless. So um, with Yeats, when it comes to the fairies, it's like that—that that was his interests. Um, of course, there are some arguments as to whether or not he was fully committed to the idea of fairies. Maybe it was just a social gathering for all, you know, it was just for him to meet, you know, the glory with his friends. Um, but you, you can't deny his poetic gifts nonetheless. And I suppose that 
you know, that leads into that debate of separating the man from the artist as well. You know, that's that's a debate you can get lost in the woods. You that's know, something like, that I've always had an interest in, uh, and maybe you can relate to it, but you, when you have an artist, poet, playwright, whatever it might be, you know, they, they create these very perfect, in many ways, uh, outlets of creativity, whether it be a play, a poem, a sonnet, whatever. But the, the man or, or the woman, there, there's human frailty uh, and, and folly, you know, um, which is very much at odds with the, the perfection that they've put on stage or, or in a book. Um, I mean, when you look at Yeats, um, what, what an incredibly interesting man to begin with. Um, I'd looked in and more recently on, tried to understand the mysticism and that part of his world, um, which I can't relate to, but again, it's easy, it's easy in hindsight looking back and, and poking holes in somebody's belief system. Um, I mean, if you put anything under the, the microscope, you're going to find fault, of course. Um, so, I, I mean, if we look at the likes of, of Heaney and, and Yeats, you know, Ireland is four poet laureate, or, or Nobel laureates, the two of which we've mentioned. Who else for you is of particular interest and why? Um, outside of Irish literature or? No, outside of Heaney and the likes of W.B. Yeats. I mean, who else uh, is an interest of yours? I mean, I, I, I've enjoyed Brendan Behan, you know, my red borsal boy, and then I've seen stage plays uh, that kind of look at the latter part of his life and stuff. So I have an interest in him. Obviously, I've seen some of O'Casey's plays in Dublin and stuff, but is there anything else that you've seen that interests you about Irish literature? Oh, well, um, Oscar Wilde. Um, I definitely think it, he's known, he, he, only written, he only wrote one novel, um, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is a great gothic story. And I suppose, you know, with, with Oscar Wilde, he, he's sort of like, well, he's up there with Winston Churchill and that he's known for, you know, all his quotes and sometimes it'd be his quotes would be misattributed to him. And that's, you know, his wit is not undeniable. But I think, uh, aside to Oscar Wilde, that isn't really talked about, I think it should be talked about more, is that he was such a brilliant critic. Like, I mean, if you read, like, his, um, the, his criticism called The Decay of Lying, or his, like, his dialogues between these two people and, like, how they, they you know, whatever it might be, they criticize modern literature or modern theater. He was such a great critic, and also to a great work of art of his would be called uh, De Profundis, which is Latin for From the Depths, is what he wrote uh, whenever he was um, in prison, whenever you know, uh, his homosexuality came to light. Um, that there is, again, a great work of art in that you have this man literally, you know, rotting in jail saying, like, I had it all and I threw it away. You know, there's sort of ways. You have this man saying, I, I've made mistakes in my life. And he's writing to his, his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas. And it's it's remarkable when he says, like, you know, yes, you helped become, you know, the source of my downfall, but I, I, I went head first into it. You know, I, I went along with this here. And it's just remarkable to see someone just being so honest, you know. And again, um, a great... A great poem of his is the Ballad of Reading Jail. Where he says, you know, man kills the thing he loves. Because it's a poem about this man who uh, strangled his wife. 
who was actually in prison at the same time as Oscar. Again, uh, if people listen, they should, they should check out this here, this other side of Oscar Wilde. Because, you know, when people think when they think about this flamboyant, you know, man, man about town in front of the theatre, but it's the quiet side of Oscar Wilde. It's that there has always spoke to me. You know, it's like, it's the, his attention to um, a man who has suffered and is able to write truthfully about his suffering, you know. Um, and again, despite all he's going for, you know, the, the two years of hard labour, you'll notice in Day Profundus, he's still using quotes from that. He's still using quotes from Wordsworth or Keats to help express his pain. So despite everything, you know, despite having lost everything, the resources of literature is uh, is with him nonetheless, you know. Um, as well as that, to the other um, Titan of Irish literature who I sort of have a love-hate relationship with would be uh, James Joyce, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I gave a talk about him as well um, at Bloomsday. Um, the thing I, I find so remarkable about Joyce is that his work, um, his early work, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, is that the first half of that novel, as I was reading it, it was almost like I was reading about myself because you have this very shy boy. It, it's basically about Joyce's own upbringing, but right? they, they change the name. We talk about this character, Stephen, but it's basically about Joyce's own life. But the first half of the novel, you have this young boy in secondary school who's shy, unsure of himself, and also quite blind, right? In, in one class, his, his glasses breaks, and a teacher asks Joyce to read, but the character Stephen to read from the board. And because Stephen kind of gets shy at that, you know, and I, I just like, oh my God, this is something I can relate to. Well, of course, as you carry on for the novel, the Steve, the character Stephen slowly turns into what people would uh, be put off by Joyce. As he's basically a know-it-all, you know, he um, almost like Yeats, where he has his group of friends and he's quoting Lord Byron, quoting all these, you know, obscure poets, and he's just showing people off through his intellectual prowess. Where he ends up saying. I want to leave Ireland for the continent to create the, un- the to create the uncreated conscience of my race. And just like, who is this guy? You know, how do how do we get from the, the kid unsure of himself, who couldn't speak in the classroom, to this guy way off to um, you know France to become this poet extraordinaire? Um, so those those I would say. I think we we mentioned Samuel Beckett as well. Of yeah, course, I- yeah. I've had an interest in Beckett. Uh, I've seen, and again, it was the same teacher that introduced me. We went to the Lyric Theatre in Belfast and saw Waiting for Godot. Um, um, as it relates to Joyce, um, I, first and foremost, I, I wasn't aware that he was buried in Switzerland. I only learned that this year. Um, he's buried in a, a cemetery just outside Zurich, uh, next to the Zurich, um, the Zurich Zoo. But inside Zurich, they have a James Joyce Centre um, it's run by this elderly academic old guy with white hair, and um, you know you can see idiosyncrasies in his his, uh, his manner and the clothes he wears. But I mean, they have walls, or they have photos on the walls where he's met, you know, um, the president, you know, um, Higgins, and or and all you know people of note from from Ireland that have come and visited the James Joyce Center. They've got like artifacts that belong to him, which is a wonderful thing, the first edition books, um, again, which is incredible. Um, but I guess in, in researching Joyce a little bit more, um, I'd understood 
and this is coming from his wife, you know, after he had died, they were going to bury him next to the zoo in Zurich. Uh, and she said quite lovingly and aptly that he would be buried close enough to hear the lions roar. You know, he always, he always enjoyed that. Um, but it, I'd also learned that, which is interesting. I mean, I, I like the art as much, but I'm much more interested in the artist. So as much as I can appreciate Heaney's poetry, I'm, I'm, my interest is in the man and what shaped his, his work, you know? Um, so I'd read a little bit more about Joyce, but at that point in time, it was quite common to, to bury the person with a little glass pane on the lid of the coffin where you could still see their face, um, mm. which, which I'd never heard of before. But it's rumored that when he was being lowered into the coffin, his wife had said, oh, my God, James, you look wonderful or you look beautiful, you know. Um, and it's those things, it's those little nuggets of information that I w wouldn't necessarily have that piqued my interest in the person. Uh, and that's what effectively I'm in the pursuit of when I look at these people. Um, but Beckett's another interesting one. I mean, he, like Joyce, he, he had gone off. I left Ireland to live in the continent. I mean, a lot of Joyce or Beckett's work is, is written in French. Um, I mean, I think Ireland at that time, and you would understand this a whole lot better than I would, given your background and understanding of literature. I mean, it was a very repressive society, you know, dominated by the church. Um, and these people like Joyce and Beckett felt they couldn't work in, in such environment. Um, and they had to sort of cast off the shackles of that conservative culture to, to truly be themselves. Um, yeah, which... I find incredibly interesting and particularly and not that we shouldn't celebrate Joyce because you know he is Irish but in many respects and it got to a point where he never set foot on Ireland again for a large part of his life you know he, he in a sense turned his back on it but yet we hold him so dear um how, how do you feel about that yeah the remarkable the remarkable thing about Joyce I would say is that he would probably consider himself a European writer, you know, his love of uh, Italian literature, like Dante, Dante's Inferno, you know, um, his knowledge of English canon of, you know, literature from, you know, Shakespeare to John Milton, right through the, you know, Charles Dickens, you know, in a work such as Ulysses, which can sometimes be almost incomprehensible, there's certain chapters where Joyce can uh, parody like nearly every style of English literature has said going as far back as old English, you know, and you just have to admire the audacity. Like sometimes you can think, well, you're going, if, if you're like, from an editor's point of view, you want to be like, Jesus, you could have scrapped that. It wouldn't, you wouldn't have lost anything. But I, you know, from studying someone's style, it's like, you just have to admire the audacity and the, just like, yeah, I can do this. The independent, you know, with Joyce, it's this independent thing you were saying there about how Ireland was repressive. And I suppose that goes back to Yates in a sense because you mentioned Bob Geldof documentary where Geldof says that Yates' cultural revolution won out as opposed to like the, the violent revolution, say, of 1916. And I think you have to remember is that W.B. Yates was from a Protestant background, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Church of Ireland. Uh, but he still was nonetheless a committed nationalist. He was still, you know, I, this idea of Ireland should be uh, culturally separate from England, even though he, he still wrote in English. Um, and 
if you look at the history of the Irish Republic, especially you know, in the years say of Eamon de Valera, like they literally did bow down to the Catholic Church. You know, they would have by the Catholic Church. And I'm not that, that's not saying against you know Roman Catholicism or anything, but it's just like the separation of church and state simply wasn't there. And like, you know, we know of like recent scandals of you know how Ireland, you know, treated women, especially women who had children out of wedlock, you know. Um whereas people like Joyce, they they were able to, you know, forward thinking at the very least, as I said, they're very much a European uh, um, state of mind. And to show you how repressive Ireland was, um, whenever I, I would teach Joyce, I would ask people like, you know, do they think Ulysses, you know, Joyce's Ulysses was banned in Ireland because like it has, you know, very graphic descriptions of all different features of the human body, shall we say, right? And all different functions of the human body. Uh, people would say, naturally, yeah, of course it was banned in, in Ireland. And you turn around and say, no, the, the actual fact was they never thought to publish it in Ireland. They just, they never were conceived to publish it in the first place. So it never had to be banned. It's just, it was never going to happen. So yeah, technically speaking, it was never was banned in Ireland because I said that they never would have considered publishing it in the first place. That's how impressive they were. So you don't need to go to the bother of censoring it. It's, no one's going to look to publish this. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, Joyce a bit like Beckett, you know, had to publish in Paris originally. Um, so yeah, you can, you can admire that independence, that independent frame of mind. Of course, it's, it's up to yourself, I suppose, how far you want to take that, you know, um, because you can perhaps lose a run of yourself in some cases, you know, like, like Joyce or Yates. Yeah. I'd, I'd always, I've not read Ulysses, and I'll be open and admit it, but I've owned a copy of Ulysses for about 20 plus years. I bought it when I was at Queen's at the Queen's University Bookshop. It's no longer there. I guess in trying to understand the greatest novel ever written, you know, I'd Googled it and um, all of these wonderful things and, and Ulysses inevitably would be in the top one or two always. So in my mind, I'd always put it on a pedestal like and understood it to be this master uh, of, of literature. So to this day, I've still not read it. And I don't know when I plan to read it, but it's something on my bucket list. Um, but I'd read something and, and this kind of relates to the Great War. You know, very often you would have seen, perhaps in advertisements or newspaper advertisements at the time, you know, you would have seen this little depiction of a young boy kneeling beneath his grandfather and asking, Granddad, what did you do during the Great War? Mm. Um, and then there was this, I guess, parody where a child is asking James Joyce, what did you do during the Great War? And his answer was, I wrote Ulysses, as, yeah. if, it as if it had the same standing as someone that fought you know, he, he put it up there, um, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, and again, more, I mean, I've read some of, of Joyce's work, um, you know, Dubliners and uh, the portrait of the artist as a young man. Um, but again, I, there's something about the person, uh, and that goes to Heaney, to Yeats, to, to anybody else. Uh, that's my keen interest, you know. With, with respect to Heaney, I'm trying to understand his poetry better. Um, but again, it's the person that, that is ultimately... I feel that impulse to learn about them. Uh, and then I suppose as a result of that, naturally I'll understand the work a bit better. Um, when we look at Seamus Heaney, um, my brother went to visit uh, his grave and, mm. and, he, and he has that wonderful line uh, on his tombstone, you know, walk on air against your better judgment. 
Um, and this kind of relates to something that you've said about Heaney and his character. Um, you know, he had wrote a poem about, about his brother. Um, I think his brother was called Hugh, um, who had epilepsy. Um, and I, I'm just going to quote, quote it. This particular poem is written um, about his brother. The poem's called Keep Going. Uh, and Hugh, his brother, mentions that it was heartwarming uh, that even with all his outstanding literary, literary career and stratospheric success, that his feet never left the ground, um, which mm. I thought was a wonderful thing to say about him. You know, here you have Heaney telling us to walk on air against your better judgment, but his whole life he was fully grounded. Um, and that, again, touches upon stuff that you've said about him, that he was accessible, he was our Seamus, uh, effectively. Um, so he, he never lost sight of himself, uh, which I think is a wonderful character trait. Um, and is that something that, and a reason in particular that why his poetry and him as a person resonates so much with us? I, I, I would say so. Um, you know, we, we were talking earlier uh, about the claims that Heaney was a coward, you know, when he left the North for Wicklow 1972. But the thing that has always struck me as, again, you know, you ask yourself, what, what would you have done this moment? Is that um, on the day that he died, whenever he was uh, being brought into the hospital in Dublin, he, uh, on the stretcher, he texted his wife, Marie, Nolly Tolomari, which is Latin for, do not be afraid. And you sit and think about your final moments, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was confident in his wife. Now, that, to me, is the measure of the man. That, to me, is if you could do that, you're thinking about your loved ones, not yourself, in your final moments, then this these claims of cowardice, you know, are irrelevant for me. Um, and that's, you know, that's, to me, is like, that's bravery. And, of course, you know, What's also brave is that, like, he, we've been talking about Yates and Joyce and how confident they were. And, it, you know, Heaney, why he was tentative about speaking for his his nation or his tribe, whatever that might be, he definitely had the confidence to quit Queens. And he definitely said, I'm going to make it as a poet. As, you know, we've been talking about this, about how difficult it is to get young people interested in reading more. He made his living through his poetry and, you know, through lectureships, you know, giving talks. So by, as you mentioned there, his stratospheric success, when he, whenever he wins a Nobel Prize for literature, he's like a global rock star when it comes to poetry, you know? That's one of the things like, you know, even people then thought, you know, it's impossible to make your living off poetry, but it is still possible. You know, each generation thinks, oh, you know, it's uh, we're worse off than we were than the previous generation when it comes to the arts and stuff like that. There, that you know, people were, were saying that in the 1960s whenever Heaney was starting out, because by that time, you know, you have you know, TSL, WHO, and they've they've almost there in their latter years, and it's like poetry seems to be a you know, modernist poetry seems to be at its end. But he just comes along, it's just you know, throughout his life, as we said, he walked on there against his bare judgment. He's like, I'm going to write about my own life. And people just, you know, 
followed him along the way, you know? So I do feel like as if he, he's, he, he set his own path, you know? Um, and that's something to be admired, whatever it might be, you know, you might, you mightn't say, oh, today I'm going to become a poet, but it's like, it's just this, we can all admire this of whatever it is you choose to be. He, he, he saw it through, you know, he kept doing it. Like, you know, um, I'm sure his, his children would say to you, like how he was locked away in his little office writing each day, you know? So it's something he tackled with, something he had to confront with each day. You know, these poems then just dropped by the air. They weren't delivered by the fairies, you know, like, you know, go back to Yates. He had to work on it day by day, line by line, you know? And yeah. that, yeah, I suppose, takes bravery because there's nothing worse than, say, you know, a blank page or something, you know, the, the tyranny of the blank page, as they call it, you know? Um, I had watched uh, an earlier interview of Heaney's and for, for the life of me, I've tried to find it since and I can't, but he had said something that struck me first as not odd, but something I'd never thought of before. He said that poetry happens at the edges of life. Um, mm. And my impression of, of Heaney the poet, and granted, I, I was relatively young at the height of his success, um, but my impression of, of the poet was that from waking art to, to sleeping art, he lived and breathed and wrote poetry. But in, in truth was, he was a family man, a husband, a father. He held down a job. Um, if, I mean, granted, this is an, elder, an older interview that goes back quite some time, but he was lecturing at Queen's, he was teaching. Uh, and quite literally, poetry was happening at, at the edges, the fringe of his life, you know, because life gets in the way. Um, so that was interesting to me that, and I suppose it is true. I mean, it, my impression of Yeats is that he dedicated effectively every waking art to writing. And perhaps Haney didn't have that luxury because he had a wife and children. Um, but remarkable that he still had, had the gift and the ability and the means to, to, to achieve what he had achieved. Um, when, when we, when we look at poetry in particular, and uh, this relates to a quote I've heard from another poet, someone I think I've seen briefly in an interview, uh, an English poet called Simon Armitage. Um, but he talks about poetry having a relatively small audience in the general scheme of things, you know, because it's not for everybody. You know, me and me and you might appreciate it, but we might be the two out of 10 people that, that have an interest. But he, he, I guess, equates poetry to shouting down a lavatory. You know, that's that's how he, uh, he tries to depict it in terms of it, how, how much it resonates with a wider audience. Um, what for you um, stands in the way for from poetry uh, being more widely read or accepted? That's definitely that's a very interesting question. Um, I think it, it goes back to what I was alluding to earlier: is that with you know, you think about you know the different ages of history. You think like the print and press, industrial age. This here, of course, is the internet age. Mm -hmm. This here conversation is facilitated through the internet, you know, uh, the electronic age, whatever you want to call it. And I do think that it has 
you know, we're talking, you know, artificial intelligence has been talked about, you know, recent in recent years, you know, Elon Musk and all this, and like, is that a threat to humanity? But we're almost through the internet. We are like, I would say, our brains are almost being rewired, you know, in a sense. I feel like as if, you know, a poem, any poem, any decent poem, should be read slowly and carefully. Uh, it might take you time and time again, rereading after rereading, to even scratch the surface of what the poem means. Do you think that's or, uh, in part a, a deterrent for some people that poetry is is very often maybe cryptic? Yeah, I I, I think that could put off po uh, people from poetry, as well as that. You know, I'm not saying anything against the education system, but um, you know. The stereotype, the stereotypical um, classroom of poetry is let's just read these words that many of us don't understand. We're not going to go in depth. And we're just going to write that, you know, this is a simile. This is where you compare one thing, this is a metaphor, and so on. Whereas, you know, you should just sit and ask people the first thing they read, when they read a poem, what did you feel? Did you understand? Why did you understand? Do you not like it? Why do you not like it? It's like if you have these extreme emotions, Explain, go with them, you know, why did you like this? What did you see? You know, is there any lines that stick in your head? Why did they stick in head? Why did the poet decide to put these words in this fashion? You know, and as it is, it's tough. You know, you spend, <laughs> you're looking, so it spends, you know, many, many years looking at poetry and, or whatever it might be, whatever form of art. And you feel like maybe you've got it all wrong. Whereas, you know, the flick of a switch or flick of this here, I can scroll through Netflix and like you pretty much have it then and there, you know, like there's, you know, I, I'd be guilty of it as well. I admit that as much as the next person that rather than sit down and read a good book, you're like, oh, I'll just scroll through Netflix, spend more time scrolling or something, actually sticking something on, you know. Um, I think that plays its part. Um, definitely, you know, I, I do think that the Linda has a lot to answer for as well, you know. Um, yeah, I was trying to understand, you know, given that, that poet's comment, you know, and talking about how audience, audiences uh, and poetry, the, the audience is typically quite small. Um, and I was trying to think, how could you better engage people with poetry? Um, I mean, time is, is something, obviously, you know, people, I don't know if they're busier or just distracted, um, but to give yourself to poetry will require time. It's, you know, it's not as fluid as sitting down to a, you know, a Dan Brown book and just reading, you know, you know, with poetry, it asks a little bit more of us, you know, you have to kind of try and decipher, you know, break through the, 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 the top surface and, and understand what lies beneath. And I guess people in many ways don't want to, uh, you know, it, it requires effort. Um, and I mean, I'm guilty of it too. I mean, when I look at my experiences, you know, I had an English teacher uh, in the Abbey, um, Mr. Mooney, and he was teaching us uh, Keats, John Keats. And, you know, he had, he had read, first and foremost, he had read the poem before we even began to, to strip it apart. But he had read this poem by Keats called An Ode to a Grecian Urn. Uh, and here I am at, what, maybe 16. And first and foremost, I don't know what a, a Grecian urn is, you know, and so, you know, it was only after he had stripped it, stripped it down into his component parts that I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's incredible what, what the poet's done there. But again, it takes time and effort. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I have an appreciation for it, uh, and Heaney in particular. I, again, like yourself, we're from the north. We're, you know, myself and perhaps yourself are from a nationalist background. So there's that element to it. Um, but again, I think helping to understand Heaney and appreciate him is the fact, like I've said earlier, he's accessible. He's right there. I can get him at the drop of a hat. And not only is it the accessibility of him reading his poetry, but explaining it to you. Um, which helps you better understand and appreciate it. Um, if we can move away from them, just to finish, I want to understand it with respect to yourself. Um, going forward, obviously, at the moment, you're, um, I guess, in many ways, in a very privileged position that you work in the library and that you're trying to engage more and more people into it. I think um, making those kind of talks available is a wonderful thing. Um, you know, it's something that I would appreciate and love to to attend, you know, and, and the more varied uh, and diverse they are, the better, you know, because not Haney, for example, won't appeal to everybody, but something else might, you know, so I think that's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Um, but aside from the academic uh, and, and stuff like that, what what is another passion of yours that you would hope to pursue or, or something that you would hope to accomplish? Well, I definitely like to travel more, you know. I definitely see more of the world. Um, but as well as that, I, I feel like at this moment, I, I, in a good way, in a very good way, I don't know what the future holds kind of thing, mm -hmm. you know. Like uh, whenever I, I started, I, I didn't know I'd be giving these talks. I didn't know I was even, you know, to do it. Like, you know, as you said, getting noticed by yourself on his podcast. I had no idea that this, you know, where this would lead. You know what I mean? It's just like I'm always just uh, keen to see what's going to happen next. Um, but like, you know, uh, apart from academia, <laughs> you know, having slated Netflix, you know, I'm interested as much in the, in the TV shows as anyone else. Um, I like, you know, I like reading things, not just you know, academic things as mm. well. You know. It could be like fantasy or a list, crime novel, whatever that might be. You know, I just always, you can't be a good book in, in my estimation. It doesn't have Absolutely. to be John Keats or, yeah, or yeah. you know, um, like, you know, even my spare time, I even like read articles say about people, have, you know, there's always something new to say about Heaney or, or, or Shakespeare. And how I read that in my spare time is, you know, really as sad as that might sound, you know. Um, but also like, you know, meeting up with friends as well. Um, it's a simple pleasure to life, you know, I'm not, Absolutely. I'm not complicated, man, you know? Yeah. But, uh, all, all, all too often, I think we get caught up in, in the, the hustle and bustle, but it's those quiet moments of, of, you know, whether it be introspection or just a moment of contentedness or contentment is, uh, is, is, is a, is a true pleasure. Um, um, I, I mean, it was something I had posted online, in not in response to the talk you were about to give, but I, I guess I'd messaged, I don't know if it was the library or yours, probably not yourself, but it was probably the post from the library. I'd asked, would it be possible or would this um, talk be streamed live? Um, mm -hmm. is, is that something you would consider for, you know, someone, it's someone that lives abroad? <laughs> yes, it's definitely, if, if there's an interest in it, I, I definitely would be uh, keen to do something along those lines, you know, like a stream talk or 
or in a different location, you know, somewhere bigger. It's just, I, I've definitely been um, thinking about that. Uh, like very recently, I've come across uh, Paddy Colvin. You ever heard of him? No. Oh, you should definitely look into uh, Paddy Colvin. Just, so he's. I think I might have actually. Uh, is relating to Michael Collins, is it? Yes, yes. So oh. Paddy Colvin, he's, he's from down south. And what he, he goes into tour where he will give funny, irreverent, sort of, you know, very fast-paced, very informative talks and the likes of historical figures, whether that be Michael Collins or Wolfton. And I've seen him twice now. I've seen him once in Belfast and one very recently in Bellini's here in Nuri, where he gave a talk of Michael Collins. And not to sound too big-headed, but I was just like, you know, sitting there thinking, like, this is something I could try and do myself. You know, and it's just like here he is talking to a room full of people. And I'm thinking, just like, yeah, you know, what? Why not me? Because like, um, I was I discovered Pi Colvin during COVID. And I actually was talking to him for him on Twitter, and like that's for me. He's he, that's the only time he started because he he started off as a musician, you know, just playing music. He, you know, he was played in the late late show. He actually was the band in the late late show, but he also just had this abiding interest in Irish history, mm-hmm. and during COVID. You know, like many people, he wasn't making a single cent of money. So he decided to post these videos online. I came across them. And now that everything's opened up again, he's taking us on tour. So I've just, I'm, you know, almost like he's got the Irish history. Maybe could I get the, the literature side, you know, <laughs> the business I mind. Mean, you have a wealth of knowledge. Um, and I mean, as it relates to Irish writers, I mean, take your pick you could uh do a tour on each of them i, I would imagine um but that, i would be excited for that um, and i don't think i mean when we look culturally and uh, at Newry, it has a very good arts and drama um culture um i mean obviously it could be much better i think Newry's entitled to a state-of-the-art facility that can accommodate those kind of things but the likes of what you're doing given those talks in heaney those are something um myself and my brother and, and some other friends and that would love um, to go to. Um, and I'm not sure that Newry uh, Library caters to that kind of thing. Um, I think you're, you're definitely onto something. Yeah, it's definitely something I love to try out. And, you know, I've even thought of uh, giving talks on not just Irish writers, like a writer I've really been fascinated with recently would be the poet John Milton. And if anyone's even familiar with him, he's sort of seen as this large figure like you know second only to Shakespeare not only in his uh you know importance in the in the academic world but also at how difficult he is to understand because he was writing 400 years ago but uh I I say he's interesting to me for so many reasons um you know he was around the 1600s you know during the English Civil War and he actually uh at some point he actually advocated for that the English to starve Irish people, like he was around at the same time as Oliver Cromwell, which of course made us, you know, yeah, you know, see that as you know, like revile him. But I, the joke I always make is that he is a good Republican in the sense that he helped behead the king, you know, King Charles the First. And what I find so remarkable about him is that, you know, he was part of the uh, English Parliament with Oliver Cromwell, but he lived after that and the the return of King Charles the Second. Uh, John Milton had to go on the run for his life, even though at this time he was completely blind. He what he did end up in prison. Whenever he came out, he wrote Paradise Lost, which 
when I first encountered it, I didn't understand any two words together because he was able, like, he, he basically took all of literature and all of scripture, you know, like something that Joyce would have balked at. I put it in, like, remarkable, I mean, absolutely remarkable poetry. And I feel like as if I would love to try and bring him to more um, wider audience. I feel like it's he's definitely, to me, in terms of just sheer poetic mastery, I think he's second to none. And just such an interesting life too. Like in his in his early 20s, John Milton said, I'm going to write something that future generations will not willingly let die. And here we are 400 years later. It's like, not only did you have the, you know, the, the conference that says young man, but he also delivered. But mm-hmm. the, the, the thing is that it was 40 years after he said the fact. So it's always, you might feel like, you know, many people, you know, listen or many people, you know, think, oh, when am I going to do that thing I want to do? And people like John Milton or even as crazy, you know, Colonel Sanders, you know, whenever he started KSC um, in his 60s, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, as long as you don't lose that, you know, motivation, as long as you don't lose that desire, it's ne- it's never too late, I feel. I know? think um, you could be to, to literature what Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, Brian Cox are to physics. And yeah. I, I think if if you willingly do all the hard work and decipher these and bring it uh, and make it understandable for the rest of us, I think there's an audience for it, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's obviously Milton the poet, but even in that brief... Um, description of his life i'm already um interested uh, it's compelling and i want to understand more uh, and that's the joy of it um i think um there, there's definitely a market f- for that um i mean i would even suggest i mean your own youtube channel or whatever it might be start your own social media and try and create a platform uh, and when you see that perhaps you've garnered interest then you know start taking taking that on the road perhaps you know Oh yeah, like um, uh, the mindset I always have is that you know, not take a library for example, or anywhere or a bookstore. Not every book is going to be a gem, right? You, you, we've all kind of you've read a book or you've watched a TV show, movie, or whatever, you know, a, a YouTube video, and you think, by God, that was awful. And you can sort of think, well, I can do something as awful as that in a way. If he can get that published out there, if he can get that out there. So can I, and some people might think, oh, maybe this actually isn't awful. You know, people might say, no, this is actually, there's something in this, you know, but you know, if, if you know, if movies like the human centipede can be made, if, you know, snakes on a plane, you know, someone greenlit this, it's like, well, you know, you just got to keep knocking on that door. As I was saying, like whenever I would contact people, it's like, they might say no, they might never even reply to you, but it's like, as long as you can say, at least I tried, you know? Absolutely. That's, that's the the very least, uh, or the best that you can do is just try. Um, I don't know if if you've ever taken the tour of Glasnevin Cemetery in in Dublin. Uh, it's it's a wonderful tour, but they, I think, every day um, have a reenactment of the oration at uh, O'Donovan Ross's grave by Padraig Pierce, uh, and day on day people show up to see it and see it and see it. Uh, I mean, when when it resonates with someone and and and, and people they will ultimately uh, flock to it. So I think what you're doing and what you hope to perhaps do, you, you will ultimately get get attention and interest. And I, for one, would uh, love to, to be 
a part of it to, to, to watch it because I'm always reminded of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a quote, but I can't attribute it to anybody in particular, but it was my brother that, that ultimately uh, told me the quote, but the beginning of knowledge is inquiry. Mm. It's just it's just that initial curiosity. Um, and it's amazing when you're curious and, and you're, you're hungry for knowledge, um, there's a there's an immense amount of knowledge out there and you just got to find what interests you. Um, like yourself, I have an interest in literature and history, but um, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And here, here we are, I've learned something new today. Uh, I felt in some respects unqualified. Here I am talking to uh, a, a gentleman with a PhD in English literature and I got a C in A-level English literature. Um, I ultimately did better in my history, um, but... Um, I think in many respects, English literature and history can run parallel because, I mean, if you look at, at what Heaney did for the Troubles, in some respects, uh, W.B. Yeats did for the Rising and that, and that period of history. Um, but I want to thank you. Uh, I've taken up perhaps enough of your time. Um, I want to thank you, Damien. And, you know, you're talking also to a man who got a C in GCSE English literature. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I'd say you got the ego, you got to put it to one side, you know. Um, there it was, that's what happened to me and <laughs> what I went on to do. But, uh, you know, you, you always, as long as you always have that curiosity, as you were saying, it just takes time. You I, you don't become smarter. It's just, it takes, you know, like Haney or whoever you want to say, it's time and effort. You got to actually sit down and take it day by day, you know. Um, whatever that topic might be, or it's Haney, the Roman Empire, whatever it is, it's just like, right, as I always say, what can I do today? Let's start this book, this chapter, you know? Um, and then slowly but surely, you like that frog, you just keep heating up, keep getting more knowledge, hopefully. Um, just one last question. Uh, as it relates to any other potential talks that you might give going forward, uh, do you have any, any other topic or, or person in mind that you would like to... Well, we mentioned them already, but the name that does keep get thrown about is Oscar Wilde. Um, okay. Because you were saying earlier about, you know, um, the man and the poet. Well, I think in Oscar Wilde's case, uh, at, at, you know, too often, like he, he has such a fascinating biography. It is fascinating. Well, if I were, you know, hopefully to give a talk in Oscar Wilde in the future, I do want to show that, yes, he does have an interest like, he also was a great artist as well. You know, like sometimes, you know, I mentioned the, the picture of Dorian Gray where this man has a portrait and every time he commits like some sort of sin, uh, the portrait gets uglier, but he says beautiful. And of course, everyone says, oh, this is obviously, uh, you know, a reference to Oscar Wilde's, you know, hidden homosexuality. And I was like, I don't want to always, you know, that's the problem with Oscar Wilde criticism. They always look to that there. You know, I, I always feel like it's a, the example I use. If you had like, you know, we discovered tomorrow um, uh, a piece of paper that says, I'm gay, signed William Shakespeare. And every piece of work would always be out there. I was like, yes, it is. It is. I agree with you. It is, you know, helpful to know the artist's life and background. But also, to, there's a bit more, you know, it is fiction in a way as well. They are creating something imaginative. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I, I would try and bring to the fore if I were to do a talk on Oscar Wilde. I was like, yes, I can't ignore his life. But I also just like to show you this is why he's also a great writer in his yeah. own respect, you know, irrespective of his own, you know, background or his own life and, and so on, you know. So he's definitely the the name that's been thrown about. 
Um, I'd be keen to to listen to that. And uh, if there were an opportunity that you would stream it live, uh, I'll, I'll I'll tune in. Well, thank you very much, Damon. I really enjoyed this. Well, absolutely, it's been a pleasure. Um, I came very much as the student, hoping to learn something from the teacher. Um, you know, I have an interest in it, but I've never specialized in, in, in literature. But uh, nevertheless, um, I, I still pursue knowledge and, and I'm always curious. So um, it's been a joy. Thank you.